consider yourself an animal lover? Just about everyone I know would answer yes to that question. I know I would. And yet the subject of animal rights and what we should do when an animal is mistreated have been areas of considerable controversy. Our laws have been slow to give strict punishments to animal abusers. And until recently, we had no way to track just how often animal cruelty happened. Now, even if you don't consider yourself an animal person, research indicates that this is a topic you should care about because people who hurt animals also hurt people. Welcome to today's show on understanding and tracking animal cruelty. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator. Today's guest is Dr. Mary Lou Randor, a licensed psychologist and senior advisor to the Animal Welfare Institute in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Mary Lou. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you. I was interested in learning from you how you got involved in this work. Well, I made the mistake of reading a book called Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. And at the time, I was a practicing clinician. I had a private practice. Um, I'm a psychologist by training. And the book was so powerful and moving that I basically segued from being a psychologist in private practice to being a psychologist working for an animal national animal protection organization, hoping to bring the skills that I have as a psychologist to that work. I think most of us would agree that we know it when we see it, but just from a, a professional standpoint, how would you define animal abuse or animal cruelty? What is defined as animal cruelty varies by state. However, most practices such as you know, farming, hunting, biomedical research are exempt from animal cruelty statutes. So depending upon your attitude, but at minimum, it would be that which is defined by the society of a particular state that is cruel. And often it includes usually cases of neglect, neglect of care, uh, left in unsanitary conditions, hoarding, Intentional cruelty is certainly where you're, an animal is deliberately harmed, animal fighting, and then there is also the category of animal sexual assault. It's interesting because I don't think I really realized all the different ways that animals can be abused. Although as a, a foster mom of many animals, I certainly have unfortunately witnessed some of the aftermath yes, of right. animal cruelty. Do we have any statistics on how often or how prevalent animal abuse is? Well, we're gathering statistics now because many years ago when I first started doing this, I would make presentations to different groups, law enforcement and others, and people would raise their hand and ask me, is animal cruelty on the increase or the decrease? Or who is most likely to commit animal cruelty? And the answer to their questions was, we don't know. And we didn't know at the time because the FBI is the agency responsible for gathering and maintaining crime data. And at that time, animal cruelty was not a crime that was coded in a way that it could be later recovered and analyzed. So a 12-year process began. It culminated in 2015. The FBI approved animal cruelty be included in what's called NIBRS, which is National Incident-Based Reporting System. So basically, we're beginning to get data 
on animal cruelty crimes. So we're going to know um, more about it in a more reliable way with each passing year. Why do you think it's so important to track animal cruelty specifically? Well, because animal cruelty often occurs at the same time other offenses or misbehavior is occurring. Let's say in a family, there could also be other types of violence within the family, whether it's domestic violence or child abuse. In neighborhoods where there is animal cruelty, such as dog fighting, that's associated with other crimes. You know, illegal drugs, weapons, illegal gambling, and you don't have to care about animals to care about animal cruelty because by paying attention to it, it allows us to make an earlier identification of a problem is occurring, and then the earlier the intervention, the more likely you're going to have an effective intervention. You know, I really want to spend some time talking with you about this link between cruelty to animals and cruelty to people because I go into prisons and okay. evaluate violent offenders who are about to be released from parole. And of course, as part of my screening process and background information, I always ask about cruelty to animals. And what's interesting to me is that the vast majority of offenders that I've worked with or that I've evaluated are horrified at the thought of animal cruelty. So I know that there's a lot of research that links certain types of violence to animal cruelty. Being a psychologist, certainly in my training, we all heard about the McDonald triad, which was the fire setting and bedwetting and animal cruelty as this hallmarker of future psychopathy. It may be that people who abuse animals as children are more likely to do that, but I think most people who end up being violent don't necessarily start with animals. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, yes, the triad, I think, was a useful way of thinking about things, but I think it's been disproven, uh, especially definitely bedwetting. And there's even some differences between fire setting and animal cruelty. An important study was done by Tia Hoffer and her colleagues at the FBI. And because they were at the FBI, they were able to pull the uh, case files of 259 convicted animal abusers from across the nation, and they developed a template for analyzing the data. And 60% of the people who had been arrested for animal cruelty had also been arrested for interpersonal domestic violence. However, they were just as likely to have committed the act of animal cruelty before as after committing the act of domestic violence. So some people refer to it as a gateway crime, and the evidence is really that it is not a gateway crime, but there is evidence that it is a crime that often co-occurs with other crime. I can certainly see that. You know, one of the things I think is interesting is not only looking at domestic violence and animal cruelty, but looking at how pets can be used during domestic violence to control a victim or family. And maybe you can speak to that for us. Uh, A pet can be used by a child abuser to buy the child's silence by threatening to harm the pet. And sometimes this pet may actually have been harmed and trying to control someone else's behavior by threatening to harm a loved one. And in the case that we're talking about a pet. So yes, that does happen. 
I think, very frequently. I was so heartened to read about so many different laws that are being passed that really do add protection to animals and to people who love animals who, and who care about them. Tell us about the PAWS Act. Yes, that, as you know, passed recently and was signed into law. Often people who are victims of domestic violence delayed leaving a violent situation because they have pets and there is nowhere, <clears throat> they don't have anywhere to go with their pets. So there has developed over the last 20 years in kind of an organic fashion, but kind of spontaneously, what's called safe havens for pets of domestic violence victims. And sometimes it's a local group that gets together and decides to put to put this service together. Sometimes it could be, for example, a fostering program. Sometimes it could be like the vets in Tampa, I know, offer services to the pets of domestic violence victims. They take them in while the domestic violence victims are in the safe house. But there's also been a push not to separate the pet from the, the victim and his or her children. So this kind of movement toward fostering uh, co-housing where they're housed in the same location is increasing. And so the Paul's Act would assist groups that want to do that, to establish safe havens, particularly the ones that are co-housed, to be able to do that. How does that practically work, Mary Lou? In other words, somebody goes to a safe house or goes to a domestic violence shelter, and as part of that process, they let the people know they have a pet? Well, I know the ones that are co-housing, I actually saw one in Tampa. So there are uh, six very big-sized roomy kennels that they have for dogs and a run space, which is right in the same general area as where the women and children are housed. So the dogs stay there in the night, but then they're visited and walked and played with throughout the day by the family. That's really great. It really is. We've been spent some time talking about domestic violence and the impact that having a pet in the home might have in terms of delaying somebody leaving or an abuser or potentially using that animal as leverage in terms of keeping that person there or threatening that animal. I wonder what the impact is on a child who witnesses animal cruelty in the home. Well, you know, it isn't good. I mean, a child witnessing any kind of violence, especially when it's over time and maybe from different types of violence, it becomes cumulative and very has a very negative effect. And often children who witness violence are either more likely to become victims of violence or perpetrators of it. And I'm aware of this too, this, this concept now, which is good, of polyvictimization, meaning that children are often exposed to more than one kind of violence. So in the home, they might be exposed to animal abuse and domestic violence in the community. They might be exposed to animal fighting. And in the school, they may be exposed to bullying. And, 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 the, and it's more than additive. It accumulates you know, logarithmic kind of fashion. So that's why it's important for different agencies and different types of people to talk to one another. So 
you have more than uh, one pair of eyes looking at a family or a child. You know, I started out my professional career working with child abuse victims as well as their families and interviewed many children, interviewed many perpetrators, interviewed many spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends of perpetrators. And I have to say, I never once ever asked a child a question about their relationship with animals or animals being in the home or pets. And I'm not happy to say that or not proud to say that, but I'm wondering what kind of questions should therapists or people who are working in domestic violence shelters, what kind of questions should they be asking of children in particular? On our website, the Animal Welfare Institute's website, we do have, we have uh, some suggested questions, but the general thrust is be curious. So you can say to the child, you know, do you have a pet? What's your pet's name? What's your pet like? And when your pet misbehaves, what happens? How many pets have you had? You know, you, you might pick up, for example, that the child, the dogs have kind of come and gone, say, throughout the house within the last three years, there have been six dogs. You might be curious about, well, what happened to them? How did that make you feel? Do you, has anybody ever tried to threaten your pet or, you know, and, and kind of start the conversation though, just by asking the simple question, do you have any pets? Have you had any pets? Tell me about them. What happened to them? And see what you find out. I can certainly see how that would be a potential window into getting a lot of important information about oh, what's yeah. going on in the home. Right. And you also get information, I think, too, about the child and what bonds they have and what attachments they have and their ability to form attachments and a little bit about the family dynamic. At the same time, asking those kind of questions can present difficulties. And one example, which, and sometimes the answer isn't easy. A number of years ago, I was teaching California teachers. The California Teachers Association invited me out. And during a period of questions, one of the teachers said that one of her colleagues who taught language arts to like 15 uh, year old, I don't know what, like 10th graders, 9th graders. They, so they kept journals, and the understanding was that the journal would be private, except that, of course, because she's teaching writing, that the teacher would see it, but nobody else. One particular day, she's noticing this young man, and he seems agitated and disturbed as he's doing this. And she goes over and she reads what he has written. And what he has written is, that his 17-year-old sister had taken the, a baseball bat and beaten their family dog to death. Wow. And Yes, so then, okay, so what do you do with that information? Wow, that is a dilemma. Yes, because there's so many considerations that have to be made. Obviously, there's a problem. I mean, who knows what else is going on in that family, right? And, and that's enough. Uh, just to be exposed to that. So, yes, you have to consider the child, what kind of follow-up is a confidentiality, what kind of services are available. But that was one dramatic example, I remember. Well, there are so many issues in that particular situation, as you pointed out. I mean, of yep. course, most, many of us are mandated reporters when it comes to child abuse. And you would certainly wonder if 
a 17-year-old is beating an animal to death in the home, what has happened to that 17-year-old that has led up to this point? But you don't have any concrete evidence at this point that any kind of child abuse has gone on. So it's really tricky. Then you have the whole confidentiality issue. And so I think that is a very difficult situation. Right. And, and I mean, one argument could be, um, and not everybody would agree with it, but that the child who witnessed that was abused by that action. You know, now, of course, it was a 17-year-old, so it was a minor doing the action. So I don't know if that the 17-year-old can be accused of child abuse when they're not a legal age themselves. But yes, it, it brings up a lot of challenges. And I'm not sure that you could even share how this person did handle this, but I guess certainly the one step with you would think that the teacher would have a confidential conversation or at least a conversation that may or may not end up being confidential about what he was sharing. I don't know how it was handled, but it's an example of how things can come up and then how it's good to try to think in advance some of the issues that you have to consider when determining what your reaction might be. Definitely. And I think when you're in a professional capacity, then on the one hand, you're probably better equipped to ask some of those questions, but there are different responsibilities that go along yes. with that as well. When I began this, my career in the animal protection movement, because as a psychologist, I was trained about, as we all are, about confidentiality and the importance of maintaining it to maintain trust in the therapeutic relationship. And then I started trying to find empirical studies where they tried to look at what was the result when confidentiality, maybe because of mandated reporting, was overcome. And, and, And interestingly, at the time, this is many years ago, but there are only about three studies. And of course, it was child abuse, because that's a mandated reporting category that was reported. And in the three studies, the in some cases, the therapeutic relationship was maintained, and in some cases, it was improved. And so it's not probably that it you report, but how you report. If you report in a way where it's thoughtful and you're trying to address the safety and concerns of all the participating, you know, all the affected people in that scenario, it would be more effective. So I just found that interesting. And I think there should be more studies like that. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. And my guest today is Dr. Mary Lou Randor. If you miss a show, you can always catch The Forensic Psychologist on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Pandora. We'll be right back. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. As we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. Well, should it news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? With blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America 
Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. Mary Lou, just before we took a break, we were talking about the dilemma a therapist or a teacher might face if they became aware that animal abuse was happening in the home of a client or a student. And let's, let's bring it even down to a more personal level for many of our viewers, which is most of our listeners are not therapists or probably teachers as well. What do you do when it's a friend of yours that you see hurting an animal or a family member that you've witnessed kicking the dog or doing something that you really feel like is abuse? It obviously would depend on your relationship with the person and if you were the junior or senior member and how extreme it was. But I think one should say something and how you should say it and then what follow-up action you should take would again depend upon the situation. I mean, if it was an adult and it was your young nephew that you saw doing something, trying to throw rocks at birds in the yard, then you should approach that kid and talk to him and probably talk to the parents also. If it's something more egregious, I think then you should do something more active than just talking to to the child. And in some cases, you might have to call the police, depending again on what what it is. Yeah, I want to spend, I wrote an article about when children are cruel to animals, when to worry. It was one of the most widely read blogs I've ever gotten in terms of getting feedback. And the response was all over the place. And what was amazing to me, a couple of things, was just certainly how horrified most of the people who responded were, which is not surprising because they took the time to read it and respond. But also there was a lot of confusion and misunderstanding between what would be age appropriate, although certainly potentially cruel from an objective point of view, behavior with children, you know, a three-year-old who grabs a cat by the tail or whatever versus a 10-year-old who is doing something that's more deliberate and is not age appropriate. There were so many punitive responses towards some behaviors in children that really did seem to be, you know, there was a need for correction or guidance for that child, but it Mm -hmm. certainly did not seem to be what you and I would consider deliberate abuse. That does happen. I think sometimes for people who have kind of a passion for protecting animals is sometimes that tendency then is to be pretty intolerant of the behavior, which is understandable. But, you know, there was a time of, a number of years ago where uh, a prosecutor from Indiana called me to ask me if I would testify at this trial. And uh, there were two young boys, one was 16 and one was 17, and they were friends. And they had gone into a neighbor's house to do some mischief they encountered the family dog and the dog you know barked and made noises and they harmed the dog in trying to silence it and the prosecutor wanted to you know throw the book at them and I asked the prosecutor some more questions about the two young men and neither one of them had been in trouble before one of them I think was from a very intact family, good grades in school, the older one, not so much. And as we were talking, 
I mean, some type of action has to be taken, but I couldn't recommend throwing the book at them because if this was the first time they'd done something like this and depending upon uh, how they explained their actions and felt about it, you would take a different course of action. I mean, so, and even, I mean, and the action should never be punitive because first of all, it's not going to work. You know, if you're a punitive and someone commits an act of violence, it's not going to be very effective in getting them to do it differently. So it kind of, it does depend. And the, the, 10-year-old is pulling the cat's tail that it's, they're not, they shouldn't do it. But at the same time, it doesn't mean necessarily they're going to become a serial killer, but you might want to understand what is going on with them, make it clear that this is inappropriate and not behavior and should not be done and discuss ways that that child can think about it so that it doesn't happen again. Absolutely. I mean, my understanding is that from a developmental point of view, for most children by age six, they understand that an animal is not a toy and that right. they understand that if you pull an animal's tail or kick an animal or drop an animal on its head or whatever, that hurts that animal. Right. And at that point, again, punitive doesn't tend to do anything but make, you know, create a kind of a cycle where one person's punitive and then there's a punitive response and it kind of becomes kind of builds on itself, but some kind of intervention needs to be done at that point. And I'm like you, people have sent me videos of children who were 12, 13. And I think we would agree that certainly by adolescence, there is something going on with a teenager who is purposefully and intentionally hurting animals, particularly over and over again. This is not a developmental issue at this point. Right. There's something else going on. What you said too is important, obviously, and that is it's a recurring behavior and it may not be the only behavior that the teenager's engaging in that is antisocial or aggressive. You know, they, they may be also getting in fights at school or, so you have to look at all of that and consider what approach to take. There was a recent case in Pennsylvania of two young men and they were, I think they were on a f football team in some town in Pennsylvania. You might've heard about this and there was deer hunting season and they shot a deer but didn't quite manage to kill it. So then they went up and started torturing it, like twisting its neck around and kicking it. And, and, and so the deer did finally die, but not a very peaceful or death. And so, and they filmed it. And then there was outrage in the community and different agencies stepped in. So, you know, what I would be, what I would want to know if I could find out more about that is what else was going on in their lives and their family lives. Which of the, did one of the two participants have a kind of a more leadership position and one was more you know, following the other? So you just have to kind of really get into the particular situation and try to understand the dynamics and the context and then figure out the best course of action. What kind of penalties, let's kind of shift into adults now because I do think that most perpetrators of animal cruelty are likely to be adults as opposed mm -hmm. to adolescents or children. What kind of penalties do adults face who've been convicted 
first of all, let's talk about just deliberate animal cruelty. Well, I think, it de- again, it depends upon the state. It can be uh, anywhere from 30 days to five years, depending on what was done. You know, some, I testified at a trial in Texas in this young man was kind of a predator and he was looking for a cat. A, a cat was kind of sitting on its own stoop, his own front porch, and he got the cat and over a period of hours tortured the cat in a variety of ways at different locations. And and he had some previous problems with his behavior and with the law. His uncle turned him in. Anyway, he was sent away for five years. So, so I'm assuming he was convicted of a felony. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yes. Mm-hmm. That, that would be a felony in, in most states. Then there was another case. That and I, rightfully so. I have, to, yeah, I have I to chime in there. No, no, I know. And they were trying to say he was because he was off his meds, medication, and but the jury was kind of swift. There's another case, which is a very sad one. It was one of the first cases... I had been in a group that law, had lobbied the state of Maryland to pass felony provision in their animal cruelty statutes 15, 20 years ago. Some states didn't have any felony provisions in animal cruelty um, statutes. So we finally got one passed. And then there was the first case that was prosecuted was this young man who had beaten a pit bull puppy to death and then threw it out discarded it probably from his car and some very good police work, detective work, they were able to determine who it was and he was brought to trial. And I remember at the time because he chose to testify and when I listened to him, he was, first of all, wasn't helping himself by testifying and he was somewhat cocky. However, he was also verbal and I thought somewhat intelligent and then at the sentencing hearing, you heard more about his life story, and he was in an intact family. And then at the age of 12, something happened to his father, and from that time on, the family kind of fell apart. And he had had a lot of problems in school, evidently, and had uh, tried to go into Job Corps, and he tried something else, then he tried to pass his GAD. So you could see him attempting to better himself, but failing. So after I heard that, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, I think he has a learning disability. Now, a learning disability doesn't make you beat a dog to death. So, you know, that it wasn't that simple. But, but you could see where by his having a learning disability, not being able to to find productive work to do, he could then kind of get into the wrong crowd. And there were you know, dog fighting groups in his neighborhood. I tried to reach him after that. I did testify at the sentencing hearing, but I tried to reach him afterwards. He was sentenced to 18 months. And at the time he was 18 years old. If I could find some services so that while he was there in his 18 months, he could be evaluated for learning disability and be given help. And the sad story was I went to 
variety of different people, to the chaplain at the jail, to his lawyer. I wrote the young man a letter. I contacted my legislature. I contacted other people. And he kind of fell between the cracks. So I don't know whether he ever got the help or not. But, you know, it's, again, you need to know the context and what you think may be some contributing problems to the behavior. And sometimes I think the answers are A and B, meaning oftentimes I think when you see a violent offense, you can point back to a history of trauma or abuse or whatever. For me as a psychologist, particularly as a forensic psychologist, I think a lot of the times it becomes A, the person as an adult is accountable for what they've done. And at the same time, if there are any kind of intervention or or services that can be provided that would help rehabilitate that person or reduce the chances of it happening again, there's no downside to providing those, but one doesn't necessarily outweigh the other. No, I I agree. And that's exactly right. I mean, Joni, you and I think like psychologists and psychologists I found out because I, I do also work now with law enforcement and prosecutors, we think differently. <laughs> I think we're more inclined to try to look at the ways to change the behavior, not just to you know make them be held responsible for it, which is also important, but it's not enough uh, just to do that, I don't think. Hopefully, as we develop more kind of inner profession groups and have conferences. Hopefully those conversations will happen. I know when I first went to work in a prison, we did a lot of interfacing with the custody officers. And initially there was no question that, you know, as a group, psychologists and mental health professionals tended to see the custody officers as kind of hard and harsh and kind of callous and unempathetic. And the custody officers kind of saw us as little, they used to call us something like little twinkles or something like that. It was like, you know, we were the little bleeding heart people who had rose colored glasses on. And yet, the more we interfaced and talked, the more I became a bit more respect and understanding of each person's perspective and developed, at least from my perspective, ways that we could support custody officers in, in seeing how difficult their jobs were and that they had a very different role. And I, I saw over time a lot of custody officers who really began to understand a bigger picture in terms of some of the mental health challenges some of the inmates had and worked harder to kind of work around or work with those. And so I I, I agree that certainly our training and our life experience oftentimes can make mental health professionals and law enforcement professionals initially come at it from very different perspectives. But I'd like to think there's some room for common ground because I ultimately think that our goal really is to make everybody safe, you know, both professions. The goal is the same and that is to create safer communities. And I agree with you. And I agree, too, that having conversations is the only way to do it. And so we can understand that we do have those common goals. I did want to talk about, just refer back to this database you were talking about of the FBI starting to track animal cruelty cases. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, I know this is kind of in in its infancy, but will there be any way for, for example, rescues, to be able to look and see if somebody has a conviction 
for some kind of animal cruelty offense. As a foster mom, I often worry about our foster animals when they get adopted, wanting to make sure they're going to good homes and loving homes. And I wonder, obviously there are things that you do, like do you have a pool? Do you have you know, a gate around your pool? How many hours will the animal be alone? All those kind of things. But there are bigger picture or, or scarier questions, like has this person ever been convicted of cruelty to animals? I'm not sure that people will, would be able to know that. The FBI database doesn't identify, you cannot identify an individual. What you have information is about the offender, their gender, their race, their age, what they did, things like that. So, but you have no idea who they are, nor can you track them. There are, however, like NCIC is another database where, but I think only law enforcement may have access to that, where you could determine whether or not a person had a prior conviction. That's a good question. I might have to look into that to see what are the resources available for for finding. I would love that to out. know. It sounds like there might be another loophole, and I know that there's. It's impossible to close all loopholes, and at some point we have to have faith in human nature and our, ourselves as screeners. But it is something I think that would be important to know if you are adopting a dog out to be able to have some kind of history on sure. that person's track record, specifically just with regard to animal crimes. We're going to take a short break. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and our topic for today is understanding and tracking animal cruelty. If you have a forensic psychology, if you have a forensic psychology topic you'd like us to cover, please email me through my website, drjonijohnston.com. We'll be right back. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right to free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to The Forensic Psychologist. And I know that neglect is perhaps the most common form of animal cruelty. It is. And we haven't even touched on that. So let me just ask you, first of all, how does that happen? 
Well, again, for a variety of reasons. I was working with a local animal protection group that when people would be brought before the court in D.C. for neglect cases, they would come to them and they would be given this educational program. But then you found out something about the circumstances of the person who was responsible for the pet. So once again, it gets more complicated. There was this young man who his girlfriend asked him, and they're always off, they're often very kind of convoluted stories because their lives are somewhat disorganized, but he was responsible for watching this young woman's dog. And then I think she never recovered her dog and he was trying to do the best he can. This young man was so skinny. <laughs> I thought he looked, you know, ready to collapse. He didn't have money to feed himself or this dog. So part of the neglect was the dog is basically had the same life he did. And I know that animal organizations do this, is trying to offer resources to the community, whether it's food or, you know, free spay-neuter or low-cost spay-neuter, dog training classes. So part of neglect is just that. Another woman left her home precipitously because a bullet went through her apartment and she had a young child. And in that running away and trying to find to live, she left her dog unattended in the apartment, which it's not a good solution. And it was an extreme situation. So again, having resources and letting community know that these resources exist would, I think, alleviate some neglect problems. And I, I know that animal service agents try to educate. People might have ideas like, dogs don't feel pain or, you know, they might have just ill-conceived ideas and therefore need to be told this is what we really do know about dogs. And when they get hungry, they do feel pain. Or, so part of it's educational too. So I think I hear you saying that part of it is due to circumstances. So the, the one example that you were giving, this young man, it really the treatment of his animal was kind of an extension of how his life is going. And his, yes. and his treatment of himself, really. He didn't have right. the resources to take care of this animal. And I would imagine that there are some situations where someone gets in a very bad financial situation and they're still attached to an animal. And maybe they don't want to give that animal up. And they I don't know. know how to get those, get those resources or that help. Or the, how to get the surgery that the animal needs. And, you know, you obviously have pets. I have a pet. And we know how expensive they can be. Yes, <laughs> to get good medical care. And and I think that if you're living below the poverty line and you still want a pet, it's going to challenge your, your finances. So yeah, so they resources are definitely more resources are needed. And then you are saying, and I would certainly agree that I think that even today, people have very different attitudes about animals. I mean, you can find people who, I know people who think, you know, well, animals are superior to human beings in terms of they're more right. loving, they're more loyal, they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you do still find people who, you know, an animal is an animal and right. they don't feel the same pain or the same hunger or they don't count as much. And so there's still oh, yeah. a real diversity of opinions. Yes, there is. And what about animal hoarders? Yes, that's a whole other kind of category of 
and they're very difficult to address. I mean, they are not always women, but they're often women of a certain age that sometimes they are maybe going into some kind of cognitive decline. Most of the time when they start, they think they are saving the animal. And, but then, you know, obviously they're in, they can endanger many, many animals. People are trying to start are studying animal hoarding to try to think of interventions. And whatever, whatever the intervention is, it has to be multi-agency. You know, housing people have to be involved and mental health people and, you know, the courts. And in the best of circumstances, I think what they try to do is to allow, to kind of negotiate with a person to tell them to get them to be more reality-based about the effect their of the conditions on the animals, but allow them maybe to keep one or two animals and then take the others and try to place them in other places. But evidently there's a very high recidivism rate. Like if they get caught in one place, then they may just move to the next town over and repeat, repeat. So it's a, it's again, law enforcement, housing authority, community agencies, family members, as many different people as you can bring into the, trying to come up with a solution is necessary in these cases. Yeah, I know the research does talk about the high recidivism rate among yes. hoarding in general and animal hoarders in particular. And I think it's interesting. I mean, I wonder if, you've come across because there have been a few situations when we've fostered for rescues and the couple of rescues, and this is by far the minority, let me, because most rescues are just amazing and do incredible work and are tireless and and et cetera, et cetera. But I've come across a couple of situations where these were started out by one or two people who were involved, you know, wanting to rescue animals. And it just seemed like things kind of spiraled out of control. And the police ended up getting involved. Is that something that you're familiar with? No, I, I know that this happens. I mean, and I haven't had direct experience, but I've heard it anecdotally and I can see it happening. And as you know, too, when people become very committed to a particular cause, there's a certain feeling that, you know, they're responsible for the survival of these dogs. And so they don't know when to stop. And then they deny the reality of what's happening. Yeah. I th- and again, I don't think that's a, a, I don't, I don't know the statistics on animal hoarding in general, but I certainly don't think that rescues are a common culprit in this, but I can certainly see, I know in California where I live in Southern California, you know, we all know if we're involved at all in animal care, we all know the shelters who have a reputation for being no kill shelters. And then we know shelters that, you know, if an animal goes, their life is going to be relatively short if that animal isn't adopted there. We call you know, they're called high kill shelters and you can certainly see how somebody might start rescuing animals from these quote high kill shelters. And then it just snowball out of control. Right. My, the the person, my friend that does this, they, because we live on the East coast and I live in Washington DC that they get a lot of dogs from the South who are in um, situations where 
you know, it isn't going to be helpful for them if they go to a shelter and they bring them here. I don't know where you are in Southern California, but the SPCA LA is a great organization. They do a lot of good work. Oh, there are, there are so many good organizations in, yeah. in my area, but there are, like I said, there are, and I think it's due primarily to circumstances. They get so many dogs in. I mean, it's hard to kind of talk about that quote, high kill shelters, because you look at the circumstances and the right. number of dogs that they get in versus the number of dogs that are adopted. And it becomes a very difficult challenge. I, as an animal person, it's hard for me to think of any dog getting put down unless it's got something severely wrong with it. But, but you know, I, I do understand that there are some practical considerations as well. So let's talk a little bit about reporting. You know, I know you mentioned calling the police. So let's, let's say, for example, that I have a neighbor and I'm seeing this neighbor keep a dog tied up 24 hours a day in the backyard. Okay. They throw food out there. They have water out there, but they don't seem to interact with this animal and the animal just pretty much is sitting out there all day long. Is that a situation? I'm putting you on the spot here, Mary Lou. No, is that a, is no, that no. a situation where I should intervene? And if so, yeah. what should I do? I think, yes, I think you should intervene. And I, in that situation, I think I probably wouldn't call the police, but I would call animal services and have them come, you know, and if, if they're a good animal service agency, they'll come, they'll talk to the people and they'll come back. They won't just show up once. They'll continue to come back to check to see if the situation has changed for the animal. Now what, and again, I, I totally know that a lot of these answers depend on what state you're living in and what the laws are. So I'm, I think, mm -hmm. looking for some general guidance versus nailing you down to, you know, Alabama versus California versus right. Washington, D.C. or whatever. But let's just say that I, as that person's neighbor, don't really want to say I'm the person complaining because I'm concerned about how my neighbor might respond. Can I report in general anonymously? I think in most cases you can. Now, whether the neighbor may suspect it's you anyway because you live next door is another question. But I think in most cases that you can you can report anonymously. Okay, because I could see how that could be a huge barrier. Oh yes. For yeah. people to report if they if they think that, you know, mm -hmm. the animal person's gonna animal services is gonna come out and say, Hey, your neighbor Mary Lou is calling up and <laughs> talking about how you're treating your animal, whether it's justified or not, which is a whole nother, we've kind of, I think, solved that, answered that question. But yeah. I'm trying to think what else I want to say. We're almost out of time, but there's a few. Bear with me for a minute, Mary Lou, while no, I go through my fine. list for a second. Oh, I know what I want to talk about. Okay. So is there any effective treatment from a therapy standpoint for animal abuse? Well, that's a very interesting question because that's another one of my areas of interest. And what I have, my latest kind of drum that I'm beating is to, to say that animal abuse is not a diagnosis. And so if you're going to treat somebody, you need to make a good diagnosis of what the problem is. Animal cruelty will be a manifestation of, you know, whatever the underlying, if there is a pathology is. So the, although I actually many years ago wrote a um, manual for the treatment of children who abuse animals, 
And the time that we did it, we did it with the best information that we had. But I now tell people not to use it <laughs> because I would suggest using treatments that we know are effective for treating antisocial behavior or whatever, you know, whatever, your, whatever the diagnosis is. And it, you know, could be so many different things involved. So an appropriate diagnosis is, uh, I think, the most important thing. And with that, I think any competent mental health professional could treat someone. Uh, but again, you know, you need a good diagnosis. So that you're saying, which I completely agree with, but it's really interesting to hear you say that, that, yeah, that the problem, that animal cruelty is a symptom in a way right. of a bigger problem. Yeah. And you have to evaluate that person like you would anybody else who right. needs mental health services, figure out what the bigger picture problem is and then address right. that problem. I, exactly. Um, yeah. You know, do they have impulse control? Do they need medication? Do you know, are they intellectually behind, you know, behind, I mean, what you have to diagnose the problem. And so we don't need a new specialty. We need to pay attention to animal abuse and then make sure that the people who engage in it are given a proper treatment. But I don't, you know, I, I think, as I said, it's not a diagnosis. That makes a lot of sense to me. At the same time, let me play devil's advocate for a minute sure. and, and say, okay, we've, we've had this hypothetical 10 year old through our conversation today talking about, okay, here's a 10 year old who was, you know, hurting an animal or hurting a dog. And let's say this 10 year old comes to see you or me. And we find out this child has, I'm not, I'm not going to make up a diagnosis because I don't want to imply that any diagnosis is associated with animal cruelty, but we've, we've made a diagnosis. We're making progress with this 10 year old and this 10 year old now wants to get another pet. He or she is saying, I would never hurt an animal. Would it not be a good idea to somehow incorporate getting this new pet into therapy? Oh, definitely. And how would you do that? Well, first of all, I think you can make it, you can make a plan with the child. Like, you know, like where, what kind of a pet do you want? Why do you want that kind of, you know, what size, et cetera? How are you going to get the, the pet? Ask them how they're going to take care of the pet and develop, help them think it out. What, how will you interact with the pet? You know, suggest that they go and take a dog behavior class at their local humane society to interact with their pet. I would work with them and then, you know, monitor the situation as best I could. So, and clearly, if we're talking about yeah. a 10 year old, you have a whole family involved. Yes. So, of course you know, you working yes. with the parents, I think would be, would be really important there. But I would also think like you were saying, you know, 10 year olds, even adults is so difficult. Sometimes we can talk through a situation. Okay. If this happens, I'm going to do this, or this is a plan. And yet sometimes our best plans fall short when the reality of the situation arises. And so right. it would make a lot of sense to me. What you're talking about is making some kind of contract with that 10 year old with the parents right. in terms of making sure that child does an obedience class, for example, with that new pet or learns how to discipline properly or I guess adjust behavior properly. Because mm -hmm. I would, if, if impulse control is a problem with that child, that child has to deal with that 
on a bigger picture level. But at the same time, you know, animals, puppies especially, can be very frustrating, right? They do things that we don't want them to do, right? They go to the bathroom on the floor. They, you know, they, know. they chew up things. You know, they do things that can try anybody's patience. And so making sure that child understands those kinds of things and knows how to deal with those would, think, would seem to be very important. Yes, and then maybe even the, the adopting the pet would be a goal that would have to be achieved by the child demonstrating certain behaviors before that was allowed or recommended. Well, we're about out of time, but I want to thank you so much for coming on. I always ask every guest at the very end if there was one thing you would want our audience to take away from our conversation, what would it be? So here's that question for you. Animals are people too. <laughs> and I, what I mean is that our lives are intertwined, our welfare is intertwined. And so knowing that, act accordingly. Well, that's a very, a very positive and accurate message for our listeners. And we'll make sure that we have links to your website and some of the resources that you mentioned with the show as well. So thank you so much, Mary Lou, for coming on and providing a lot of insight to us about a topic that I think is very timely and also very important. I enjoyed talking with you. You are listening to The Forensic Psychologist. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we'll see you next time. 